title of this evening's talk is The Four Reminders. I want to start with a story from the Tibetan tradition about the uh, famous uh, Tibetan master Milarepa. This is kind of a prologue. On the very first occasion, when the physician monk Gampopa met Milarepa, his predestined master, Milarepa offered him a skullcap full of Chang. Gampopa protested that to drink alcohol was against his vows. Milarepa, the laughing Vajra diamond, smilingly assured him that the highest spiritual precept is to obey the master's command. At that, Gampopa unhesitatingly drained the vessel. Then Milarepa knew the monk would be his spiritual heir. After years of solitary meditation in a cave, interspersed with visits to Milarepa, Gampopa finally completed his training and was ready to leave his master. Milarepa placed both bare feet upon Gampopa's head as a benediction. Gampopa asked the singing yogi for final instructions. Milarepa, however, simply said, what is needed is more effort, not more teachings. And he would say no more. Gampopa set off and had already crossed a narrow stream when Milarepa shouted to attract his attention one last time. The guru knew he would not see Gampopa again during his lifetime, this lifetime. I have one very profound secret instruction, Milarepa said. It is far too precious to give it away to just anyone. Gampopa looked back. Milarepa suddenly turned around, bent over, pulled up his ragged robe, displaying a buttocks as calloused and pockmarked as a horse's hoof, hardened from so many long years of seated meditation on bare rock. That's my final instruction, Hartsang. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so this is um, as one of someone who came in to an interview today who has heard me do flavors of this talk before. Uh, this is my exhortation. This is my encouragement to, uh, to keep the fire burning. Because although, um, well, my friend Hanuman, a very dear heart friend, uh, yogi friend, says the problem with the timeless is you never know what time it is. <laughs> and because I know all of you have been kind of resting in that stainless awareness you've, uh, that has no beginning and no end. You've stepped out of time. Uh, still, I've been hearing, although you are radiating light, I've been hearing rumblings. <laughs> the rumblings of time, the rumblings of one more week, the rumblings of five more weeks, or and depending on the perception of that, whether it depending on whether something's pleasant or unpleasant, it's either another whole week or, or only one more week. Whatever it is, the rumblings are, are happening. And so I thought it would, be, um, it would be just a, um, a good reminder for all of us uh, of the extraordinarily precious um, opportunity that we have 
both the purity that's built up during this practice period and really the beginning of the beginning of the practice period, which is really right now. Since every moment, as you probably have begin have have sensed as you come as you've been here a while, every moment has a certain kind of freshness when it is when our minds are open uh, for a moment anyway, free of hope, expectation. There's a kind of brightness, and I. And yet, these rumblings tend to begin to obscure that that freshness, and we can easily our practice can easily um, devolve into a kind of uh, anxious anticipation of what's next. So, what I'd like to uh, share tonight is the is a very classic teaching that, um, in fact, in the Tibetan tradition, it's a teaching that's given before one ever takes refuge or any of the ways of entering into um, into practice. And it's called the Four Reminders. And it's basically the reminder of the, the precious opportunity that we have as a human being to make something of our lives. The fact of, um, that our lives are impermanent. And there's death and dying, and all of us have to do, all five billion of us. And uh, the time of that is uncertain. And and that what we do matters. What we do, what we do in this moment uh, leaves an imprint and it produces what our future present moments are. And, uh, and depending on what we do with this moment, our, our future looks and is shaped one way or the other. And last but not least, just a reminder of the, um, what's the classic teaching is the defects of samsara, the, the the problems with our, um, our normal, our very well-conditioned cultural trance of um, getting caught up in what's next. So before I do that, I want to just go back again to that sense of, of our awareness. And Carol spoke so beautifully last night about the the um, union of, of emptiness and compassion and about the very essence of our mind being uh, empty, open, and its nature being a kind of clarity, a, a luminosity, cognizance, and the expression of that being this unimpeded responsiveness, compassion, and caring, and service in whatever way it express itself, expresses itself. And We've been emphasizing over the course of this retreat that really the, the heart of what we do every day is keep reminding ourselves of this precious jewel of awareness within our heart and mind. And that sense of it always being available and its, its nature being open. And another way that I like to reflect on that openness of the uh, nature of my mind is that when there is that sense of cognizance, when it is conscious, each moment that your mind is open, it is, uh, it is a fertile, an open, creative um, potential. It's like a, a, well, um, a well-readied soil. And the ignorance of this amazing, open, creative potential is, um, is a... Um, a, a kind of tragedy, a kind of, um, it's a sad loss. And we, we forget it and lose this at our own peril. And 
we wander a long time, confused, as you may have noticed. And the Tibetans really look at this, this awareness as something that, um, that is so, it's, we, we must use and use it really well. And they, they talk about how we don't recognize it, its value, because of basically four different, for four reasons. One, because it's too close. Two, because it's uh, too profound. Three, because it's too easy. Too easy to, to just rest in awareness. It's too easy. We, we tend to want to complicate things. And last but not least, it's too wondrous. That we, we don't realize what we have as this amazing creative potential within our own, our own being. Even the one to whom this is, you know, the one who is perceiving this right now. So you can see that our mind is open and creative by the effects of having been here and dropping into that field of creativity, open um, potential, moment after moment of mindfulness, moment after moment of love, moment after moment of, of, um, of as wholesome in, intentions as you've been able to, to come up with, it is so palpable for us, as, and we talk about it in the, in the teacher room and in meals, etc., what it's like right now to, to sit across from you and have you come in the room, regardless of what you're going through. There is a palpable sense of, of purity and innocence and sweetness and, and light. and uh, This is not by accident. It is because of that capacity for our minds to be shaped, to be turned toward the wholesome, to awaken that. And there is not a person here who isn't just a case in point for this, this capacity. And, and it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's amazing for, for us to witness. So one of the things that's kept me on the cushion a little bit, kept me, kept my tush getting more calloused, even though what's callousing it now is trying to be a conscious parent more than you know, keeping my tush on the cush. Uh, but what's really kept me fresh is something that, uh, that I've been dropping into that open field for really about uh, more than 30 years now. I had the great good fortune of, in the, in the 70s, being in a complete... Uh, completely lost, kind of existential crisis after college, privileged enough to be able to wander around but not really know where I was going. And I was able to uh, travel through Asia, and I happened to stumble into the place in Afghanistan called Bamayan, where those Buddhas were carved out of the hills. And at those days, before they were blown up, they were painted very ornately and beautifully and very inspired by these Buddhas. And, but most importantly, I met a fellow in a little tea shop up in this obscure little town up in the mountains of, of Afghanistan who was a, an American guy who was just finishing a period in the Peace Corps and had been hanging out in Nepal in McLeod Ganj where the, or in um, northern India 
hanging out there, getting teachings, Buddhist teachings. I didn't know much about, I didn't know Buddhism from Shmudism in those days. Anyway, he came back to this place in Afghanistan where he'd been in the Peace Corps uh, to do one last pilgrimage before he ordained as a monk. And he sat down with my friend and I late into the night and started talking about the Buddha Dharma, started talking about emptiness, started talking about impermanence, started talking about the teachings. And it, it lit a fire and it shook me to my, to my bones to the extent that I couldn't sleep the entire night uh, that I was talking to him. And really for the next several months, I really was disoriented. And it was really because my heart had been pierced by that, um, by that basic teaching was that we are not who we imagine ourselves to be. And just the disorientation of not really knowing who or what I was at that point uh, led me and kind of lit this fire of, of a kind of search. And fortunately, he told my friend and I to go to this place called McLeod Ganj, where the Dalai Lama was. And we kind of crawled our way in, up this mountain to see the Dalai Lama. I didn't know who the Dalai Lama was. You know, he was the Shmali Lama. <laughs> it really didn't matter. But he was supposed to have some, something to say. And we went to the place where the Dalai Lama lived. And we walked to the door and they said, come on in. <laughs> the Dalai Lama has just come out of retreat where he'd been for six weeks or six months or something because some, peop- some Tibetans from Ladakh had come down to uh, McLeod Ganj to have, to have a meeting with the Dalai Lama to get blessings, etc. And so they invited us in. And we did, they gave us a little scarf and we did the little routine and we touched heads and did all that. And, but the most important thing that he did was he sent my friend and I to study with the the teacher, the Lama, who was uh, serving Westerners at that time, the English-speaking Lama. And so for the next several weeks, I listened day in and day out to this, what, what's traditionally been called the, the mind-changing reflection, the, the, the reflections that turn one's mind toward the Dharma, that shape our direction toward the gravitational field of of awakening as opposed to the vortex or gravitational field of, of me, my, and mine, and what's next. And I would say that over the years, reflecting on these, these um, reminders has really slowly, slowly, and not to mention the, because it's so inspired me to practice so much, it's helped loosen, loosen the hold of, um, of my dependency on, uh, on conditions to be a certain way for my sense of well-being. And I realize that my freedom may be kind of bourgeois, and I haven't been tested in the way that some people are tested. But, but there is a real difference from when I was younger and, and now. What really holds interest? What really holds passion? And what what I'm captivated with, and it's, it's just generally not as, as much, not as sticky with the things that I know will not um, give me lasting satisfaction, that are not reliable refuges. So the first of these reflections is the traditional, reflect, is the traditional reminder that um, it is a precious 
opportunity to be born in a human body, to be born a human. That it is possible because of this open awareness that we have to make something of our life. We can drop something into that open field and really, um, really become happier than we are. And this very life with its blessings, its comfort, and its opportunities is considered very difficult to attain. It's quite tenuous. It's easily lost. And so the encouragement is that you use it to practice. You use it to really wake up in as uh, wake up the most wholesome qualities that you can for your benefit and for the benefit of all beings. Shanti Deva uh, put it this way: These human leisures, opportunities, and faculties are very rare to obtain and easily lost. If one squanders the chance to fulfill the aim of human life, how will such a opportunity arise again. And when I was thinking about this today, I was thinking about uh, a little sign that was on the wall of, a, of the monastery in Kathmandu when I visited the uh, Tibetan Lama Tulku Urgen Rinpoche many years ago. And on this little poster on the wall was a eulogy he had made or he had given for his wife. And the eulogy said she never wasted a single moment. She was considered a great yogi in her own right. She had never wasted a single moment. I thought that was quite amazing, just to even contemplate that possibility, given how many frivolous moments I've had in my life, and in fact, sometimes long for. (laughs) But um, that was amazing to me that possibility of really making use of our life. You know, this is actually things like this about the preciousness of human birth. It's supposed to really stir our hearts and really get us into taking advantage of our life here, bringing a sense of urgency. And in, the, in this tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, they, the way they try to stir your heart is by presenting the cosmology of the possibility of being born in all kinds of different realms of existence, that the human is the more rare one, and that you could be born in a hell realm, or you could be born in what's called the realm of the hungry ghosts, uh, which is depicted by beings with tiny little mouths and huge stomachs, insatiable, endlessly wanting, endlessly paranoid. You could be born in the animal realm where beings are constantly eaten or eating or being eaten. Uh, You could be born a human, but so barbaric, so aggressive, uh, like there are so many in this world that you have no interest in anything like Dharma. You could be born human and so close-minded, so constricted, so contracted that there's no interest in, no curiosity in anything beyond just the most concrete uh, reality, or born as a human with so much um, disability that, that just no capacity to do anything other than deal with just basic survival. Or you could be born in a so-called deva realm or celestial realm where there's just so much pleasure that, um, that the senses get kind of dulled from, you know, there's not enough friction to really generate any, any um, 
interest in changing anything the way it is. And so people, beings can kind of wander, kind of complacent. And I would say that our culture is a little bit Deva-like, uh, so much satiated with the, such a myriad of pleasures that, um, that we tend to get dulled. But just, even though this may not stir your heart, this, in fact, for me, it's, I really see these as metaphors for the states of mind that I enter into and the states of mind that our, that our cultures reflect, uh, the state of the hungry ghost. We, we live in a hungry, beside being a Deva realm culture, at least Western culture that has so much privilege, uh, we're also a hungry ghost culture where we, do our, we are like we have small mouths and huge stomachs. And we often in our lives, uh, and I know that uh, you've got, become much more intimate with, with these incarnations that occur on retreat when you really enter into a hell realm where it is constant torment. So you can see them as states of mind that, you, that we enter, or you can take them literally, right? whatever may stir your heart. But this is the traditional description of how rare it is to be uh, born a human being. Suppose that there was a blind turtle at the bottom of a great ocean. Somewhere on the surface of the ocean there was a ring of wood floating on the waves with the wind blowing back and forth. A blind turtle happens to surface once every 100 years, and the chances of that turtle, that that turtle will put his head through the ring of wood is greater than the chances of being born a human being. Doesn't that stir your heart? <laughs> It's possible. So Dujum Rinpoche keeps, uh, continues on this theme. He says, ask yourself how many billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea how rare it is to be born a human? And how many of those who understand the rarity even think of using it to practice the Dharma? So the message here is, regardless of whether you view the reality of, of planes of existence or whether they're metaphor or, or real, the message here is that we, especially those of us who have the great good fortune of being here on this retreat, are, as my teacher Punjaji put it, we are neck deep in grace. We are really so ultimately fortunate. And we truly with a mind that is somewhat open, cultivating the qualities that we are here, uh, we can really make something of our lives. We have the conditions of enough health. I don't say perfect health because there are many people on this retreat who have um, very challenging health conditions, but we have enough energy, enough health, enough um, ability to feel and to think freely, and uh, we have our basic requisites, we have enough resources to be here, and generally enough resources in our lives, we have food, and so we're not mostly in survival mode. We live in a, a place that, where we're free to meet like this. It's not so common in the world. It's actually quite rare. You know, there are countless, there are billions in the world that can't meet like this, that it's not safe to meet like this. We're, we're, not, um, we're not trapped. There's a certain kind of openness here. These conditions, as we know, 
can change on a dime, like the weather. Some of you may not know this, but there is uh, a big storm expected tomorrow. <laughs> Thought I'd drop the weather report in at this time. <laughs> but really, in a flash, natural disasters come, wars, illness. And if you just even reflect on the changes that have happened, one, in your life since you came to the retreat, think of your life over the last year, just think of the successes, the failures, losses, sickness, breakups, unions. The wheel just keeps rolling along. And the encouragement is to take advantage of this, uh, these amazing, rare conditions. And it's really unique. And it's so, been so apparent to us on this side of the cushion, and of course I've had my own experience with it as a yogi, that it is, a, it is unique to our human predicament, human condition, that, that our difficulties uh, can be the source of so much um, light and healing. So we have, we have so many opportunities here to to wake up and to, to keep the fire burning. We've all had the great opportunity to, to meet with the Dharma, with a, a teaching that reminds us that there is that capacity to discover within our own hearts, not lifting out of this moment, a sense of, of balance, well-being, stillness, steadiness that doesn't depend on what's visiting and that, that is growing, that royal seat of equanimity. So we've, we have the, the fortune of hearing teachings that uh, have not always been available. We have the fortune of the, the legacy of 2,500 years of a living uh, stream of practitioners. We are the beneficiaries of that. It's really unbelievable fortune. Teachings have come to our own neighborhoods, we have good friends, that like-minded friends, to sit with. You know what it's like to sit alone at home, the difference between the sacred power of practicing with other people. What blessed conditions. We have to remember that, not be too busy um, thinking about the end of the retreat. So we can reflect at any time, any moment, about the preciousness of our situation, the opportunity to make something of our life or our practice, asking ourselves, am I making use of this opportunity? Am I wasting time? Of course, we don't want to get into the judgment game, but a real honest assessment of how we're spending our time here. How much of my day passes with, with um, unawareness? Where am I leaking? Again, this is not to be judgmental or heavy-handed, but to see where, am I, where, is the, where does the fire wane?
How strong are my habits that keep me bound in searching for something else? How strong are those habits that, and how much am I leaning? How much am I toppling forward? Using the honesty about that as a, as a springboard, as a reminder, that it would be perhaps foolish to waste, waste the time. Remind ourselves to, to make the commitment again and again to, to practice as fully as we can. So when I reflect on the preciousness of human birth and this opportunity, there is that, there is that um, thinking about it and thinking about the, the plane of existence and my fortunate conditions. But then it's the, the reality of appreciating moment to moment, not just as a practice leading somewhere, but moment to moment, the preciousness of just being able to sit, to put my body in this position, the, the capacity to, to speak, to hear, to smell, to taste, to see these miraculous expressions of being a human. How this whole world that we create, this whole world depends on our capacity to connect with this. Uh, it depends on, to know it depends on this body, this sense of being incarnated, being a person, a human. And to, to slow down enough to really appreciate the preciousness of just these different, as called the six-fold sense bases, the six senses, it's amazing. And Tibetans have that word, emaho, how amazing. Just to see for a moment, just to hear. No one could ever really explain it. This is the, the preciousness of our existence. To be able to walk. Some of you have heard this story before, and, and it, maybe it's only an important story for me, but I used to, you know, spend a lot of long, I had a long, lot of long practice periods, and I spent a lot of that time at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and I would walk in front of this hedge of trees um, in front of the center there, and I would, uh, and it would start out with some grass, and then it, by the time I was done, the grass had worn down, and so there was that, that sense of impermanence, but I would just walk and walk and walk for hours and hours as we do here. And one day it dawned on me as I was just walking, just that pure experience of walking. It was so simple, so immediate, so precious in its simplicity, that a thought came to my mind, if I never did another thing in my life, my life would be well spent. Just walking. And I... I always assume that only yogis can understand that. You know, we have such highfalutin ideas about what it means to live a, a valuable life, but to be able to have that intimacy, that simplicity, that such ordinariness, to realize how extraordinary that is. 
This is, to me, the appreciation of the preciousness of this human birth. Other expressions of the the preciousness of human birth that I just brought along tonight, because I just thought they were they were not so much exhortations to practice, but to, to just appreciate the qualities that are available to us as human beings, uh, expressed in, in certain cultures. One is a story of, of the, um, this tribe in South Africa, the Babemba tribe, just the way that they handled people who got into trouble in their community. When a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly in the Bambemba tribe of South Africa, he is placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused, one at a time, about all the good things the person in in the center of the circle has done in his or her lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. The tribal ceremony often lasts several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. We have this extraordinary capacity to be wise and kind, compassionate. A story from Jack Cornfield. No matter how extreme the circumstances, a transformation of the heart is possible. Once on the train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who had worked for the State Department in India but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youth he worked with were gang members who had committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the, writ- at the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in a juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit the killer. He had been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time they talked, and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of the three-year sentence, she asked him if he would be doing what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain. So she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months he lived there, ate her food, worked at the job, and one evening she called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited, and she started. 
Do you remember in the courtroom when I said that I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room. I'd like to adopt you if you let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he never had. So this is a, a precious human birth. Slightly more um, simple example of the preciousness. To this morning I was sitting in the yurt with, with Martha and Marilyn. And they were sitting across from each other, a friendly conversation. And they started to describe to me that for the last two years they have been gratitude buddies. Hope it's okay that I talk about it. And every day they send each other uh, an email or a message talking about one or two things that they feel grateful for. And the planting of those seeds over and over and the sharing that it created, it just really struck me in the heart of how precious that is. That simple human act of connecting, inclining the heart in that way toward, uh, toward uh, gratitude and just that basic relationship. Easy to overlook these, these precious expressions of human existence. And then the reminder that the second reminder, death and impermanence. exemplified by the poem by Pablo Neruda. What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. I just like that poem. <laughs> this is just the reminder that all things are impermanent. The definition of birth, according to the Wiley's Dictionary, is the, is the leading cause of death. Everyone born will die. Woody Allen says, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Sorry. So even masters, saints, all our teachers, everyone will will ultimately die. And anything that you've um, pulled together in your life, all the possessions, all the stuff, 
everything will have to ultimately be released. And every single person, all those near and dear, sweet relationships will ultimately end in separation. Of course, this is a reminder to to realize the deathless, to recognize, to find within us that which is unshakable in the face of, of this fact of change and impermanence. Or as my teacher Punjaji used to put it, marry the one who won't divorce you. Marry that in you which cannot be taken away. And Ajahn Sumedho reminds us again and again of of impermanence in his passage where he looks at us, this human existence, our condition here. He says, now we're sitting in a room full of karmic formations that we conceive to be permanent personalities. We carry these around like a conceptions bag because on the conventional level of thoughts, we regard each other as permanent personalities. How many things do you carry around with you? Grudges against people, infatuations, fears, things of the past. We can get upset just by thinking the name of someone who has caused us suffering. How dare they do that over something that may have happened 20 or 30 years ago? Some people spend most of their lives holding on, carrying grudges around so that they ruin the rest of their lives. But as meditators, we break through this pattern of memory. Instead of remembering people and making them real, we see that in the moment, memory and bitterness are changing conditions. We see that they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, empty of self. They are formed in time just like the sand grains of the Ganges River. Whether they're beautiful, ugly, black or white, sand grains is all they are. So listen inwardly. Listen to the mind when you start to experience pain in the body. Bring up the voice that says, I don't like this pain. When's the bell going to ring? Listen to the moaning, discontented voice or the bliss. Listen to the angel indulging in bliss and happiness and take the position of the silent listener, making no preferences between devas and, and demons. And remember that if it's a condition, it ends. Recognize and let things come and go They're just karmic conditions changing, so don't interfere. The tendency of the modern mind is to think that there's some ogre lurking way down deep inside, just waiting for an unguarded moment to overwhelm you and drive you permanently insane. (laughs) Some people actually live their whole lives with that kind of fear, and every time the monster starts to come up, they say, oh, but monsters are just another condition, another grain of sand of the Ganges River, maybe an ugly sand grain, but that's all. You're going to get upset every time you see an ugly sand grain. You're going to find life increasingly more difficult. Sometimes we have to accept the fact that some sand grains are ugly. Let them be ugly. Don't be upset. If you saw me sitting by the Ganges River looking at ugly sand grains, saying I'm going to go crazy, you'd think I was crazy. Even a really ugly sand grain is just a sand grain. So what we're doing is looking again and again, reminding ourselves of the common factor of all these different qualities, hidden monsters, latent repressed energies, powers, archetypal forces. They're all just conditions, nothing much. You take the position of the Buddha, being the knowing, 
Even the unknown, you see, is another changing condition. Sometimes there's knowing, sometimes not knowing. One conditions the other. The black hole, sunlight, night and day are all changed. There's no self, nothing to become if you're being the knowing. But if you're reacting to all the qualities of samsara, you get really neurotic. That's endless, just like reacting to all the sand grains of the Ganges River. How many lifetimes does it take to react to all the sand grains in the Ganges River? Do you think you have to emotionally respond to each sand grain of the Ganges River, being ecstatic over the beautiful and depressed over the ugly? Yet that's what people do. They dull themselves, get worn out and exhausted with this emotional turmoil and want to annihilate themselves. So what we're doing instead of building a shell and hiding ourselves away in fear and dullness is to observe that none of this is permanent. None of it is self. So we don't have to desensitize ourselves. We can become even more sensitive, clear and bright. And in that clarity and brightness, there is the knowing that if it arises, it passes away. And that's what Buddhas know. And the Buddha said, the universe and its inhabitants are as ephemeral as the clouds in the sky. Beings being born and dying are like a spectacular dance or a drama show. The duration of our lives is like a flash of lightning or a firefly's brief twinkle. Everything passes like flowing water off a steep waterfall. And of course we know that this is this reflection on death and impermanence is what really shaped, turned the Buddha's mind uh, toward uh, the Dharma, what really ignited his search for a reliable refuge. So this is not to adopt a view about how life is impermanent and empty, but to live in harmony with this truth. That chant that we do every night All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. As uh, Ajahn Chah says, is the only wise response, loving response to this fact is to do everything with a mind that lets go. He says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. The impermanence also reminds us that we have to seize the moment to bring that that sense of poignancy to the fact that things will pass and really use our time well. As I forgot his first name, but the Japanese psychologist Morita said, give up on yourself, begin taking action now. While being neurotic or imperfect or a procrastinator, unhealthy or lazy or any other label by which you inaccurately describe yourself, go ahead and be the best imperfect person you can be and get started on those things you want to accomplish before you die. This doesn't mean to be take on practice like Alan Watts says, like a grim duty, you know, to kind of impose this kind of um, hardcore kamikaze 
quality, which is, of course, the quality that I used to practice with foolishly when I was young, younger. <laughs> but also just to, you know, to, to, to lighten up a little, because it's, it's, it's a fleeting show, it's a dream. Treat it like a dream, like a mandala, that's an appearance. Or be like the famous 85-year-old who's probably now long past, Nadine Stair, who said, if I had my life to live over, I'd like to make more mistakes next time. I'd limber up. I'd be sillier than I've been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual trouble, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments. And if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd have nothing else, just moments, one after another. Instead of living so many years ahead of each day, instead of living so many years ahead of each day, I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had it to do over again, I would travel, travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. I think we've been really emphasizing a lot uh, this reflection on impermanence through the retreat. And, um, so I'll move on to the, the next reminder, which is the, um, the reminder of the, uh, the law of, of karma. And the reflection on this is, I think, is especially helpful in keeping us in that gravitational field of the Dharma. And it also reminds us of not just the preciousness of our life, but the preciousness of each moment. What the Buddha called, the Buddha called this the light of the world, because karma illuminates how our life unfolds and why many of the things are the way they are in our lives. And a basic teaching in the Buddha's Dharma is that all experience, all experiences, including just the fact that we are alive itself, do not arise by chance, but through the coming together of causes and conditions. As Joseph Goldstein puts it, water freezes when it is at a certain temperature, not just because we wish it to freeze. Likewise, the conditions for our own taking birth, our taking birth, whatever present circumstances, are our own past wholesome actions, 
We are the heir of our own deeds. And this understanding is meant to help us regard our own particular life story with all its joys and its difficulties with a deep and genuine respect. Hopefully, this understanding of just the lawful unfolding of things will cut through the deep tendency uh, toward unworthiness and toward self-blame. The fact that we're even here in this room is a sign of such um, of purity. It's, it's not a mistake. It's not by accident. But the basic law is that... Uh, is that all action brings results. And as Carol was mentioning last night, whatever one frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. A reminder that that whatever seeds we plant in this open field right now becomes our future present moments. As Padmasambhava put it, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. If you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. What are you planting right now? So whatever we do uh, with our body, whatever we do with our speech, whatever we do with our mind, whatever actions, they bring results. They leave an imprint. And it may not be possible to be able to see or anticipate the results of what seeds we plant. We can't. We don't really know how or when things will unfold. But you can see just in the short while that you've been here, planting those seeds have produced certain fruits. You do not feel the same way that you did. Again, that's not by accident. That's because of of causes and conditions, cause and effect. And we expect... We all believe in karma, whether we admit it or not, because we all expect to get results from what we do. Isn't it true? We expect some kind of gain, some wisdom, some compassion. But the Buddha's unique um, contribution to the whole conversation about karma, and I could never give a a big talk on karma, I'm mentioning it because our time is short, But his contribution was a little bit of what Carol spoke about yesterday, was that what really determines the result of our actions uh, depends on the motivation behind it. And so the, the invitation that she made this morning with the three excellences to really keep clarifying our motivation, keep reminding ourselves what, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then as part of that to dedicate the fruits and blessings, the merit of our practice to, to all beings, and then continue to remind ourselves, this is planting a, a kind of seed. And that becomes our future life. And I know Guy, I think, mentioned in one of his talks the prayer that the Dalai Lama, the seed he plants every single day, over and over. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. Over and over, 
dropping that, to me, the most, the most wholesome use of our intellect, to drop those, and our conceptual mind, to drop those seeds into our heart and let them begin to ripple, just as you have been. May I be happy. May you be happy. Again and again. The power of repetition. A few years ago, I, um, when I first started thinking about giving a, a talk on the on the mind changes and and the um, the possibility of of planting the seeds that produce the the fruits of of stability and brightness and love and all that can come out of our practice, I thought of the poem from Galway Canal uh, called uh, "Relearning Loveliness" or something like that, and I was thinking of the key line in that poem which is the, I think the, I've got it right here. Um, some, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. So I started to think about using this poem during the, the instructional sit that morning. And I was so afraid that I was going to forget to, to deliver it uh, that evening because I wanted... You know, I really wanted it to be part of the talk, so I started repeating it in my mind. Reteach a thing its loveliness. Reteach a thing its loveliness. Reteach a thing its loveliness. And just those words, I started to have this kind of feeling of, of rapture. Of, of, I felt lovely. You know, it softened everything. Just having that word floating through my mind. Loveliness. Reteach a thing its loveliness. Just such a simple example of of the, our whole system uh, responding to the inclination of our heart, the inclination of our mind. And just how important it is to keep clarifying the, our attitude, to really incline toward, toward that um, goodwill, incline toward being positive, um, not, to be, not to be bashful about planting the seeds of the, of the states of mind that, that gladden the heart. Someone sent me an email from uh, offering the song of a 91-year-old woman named Helen Green Ashley. And this was the words that she sang for herself. This is her mantra. As the cells in my body renew, cha-cha-cha, and my purpose in life I review, cha-cha-cha, I find growing older, I'm increasingly bolder and, increase, and increasingly hard to subdue. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> now notice the effect on your mind. And this is, this is a karma. This is an action of, of speech, of inner speech and the fruit. But it can get more serious than that. Uh, the... The actions that seem helpful, that that begin to break the bonds of our um, of our dependency uh, on conditions to be to be okay. Today I was perusing the um, letter that used to be that at least was designed to be sent out to yogis when they would arrive on, when they would be when they would register for the retreat, and in it was a. Um, were some requests or some expectations. 
And they were really practices. They were seeds being planted, ways of being that we, we wanted to plant certain seeds here, creating a culture where people began to experience the benefits of simplicity and renunciation. And, and there were basically, uh, there were four requests or four I get requests or demands to take whatever room was offered, to take whatever food was offered, to keep noble silence, and to, to do work meditation. And, and this creates a, one, it creates a beautiful community and it creates such a wonderful atmosphere for each other. But when I was looking at this today and thinking how our center has evolved, that now, and this is in no way a judgment or blame of everyone, of anyone, but this practice of voluntary simplicity and renunciation, although it is tremendous relative to just living our lives the way we normally do. But in other ways, we have just, there's been a tendency to just transplant our dependency to Spirit Rock. People come usually with a huge list of, I have to have this kind of room, I have to have this kind of food, I can't do this job at this time. And, and again, I'm not singling anyone out, but it, we can easily just drift along producing the kind of karma that keeps us very dependent on conditions being just the way we want them, having more passion about comfort than about freedom. And that possibility of, of practicing our life in a way that, and reflecting on what actually brings freedom, what seeds being planted, what karmas bring more freedom and what brings more bondage, without any kind of judgment again, just the just a reflection about how we relate to our own life and our own habits. And just the last but not least about um, karma, I leave you with the poem from Hafez and his poem, a few lines from it from, called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. <laughs> You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So the last reminder, in three words or less, is the reminder about the, the defects or the trouble with our samsaric existence, uh, the wheel of, the endless wheel of becoming that we tend to be caught up in the cycles of having, losing, wanting more, and the insatiability. And to, be, to take an honest look at this as, a, as a, a springboard to beginning to release that, that grasping, that tight fist that holds so tightly to this wheel. And I'll just read one passage that so graphically expresses the, the defects of samsara, which is this fourth reminder from Sogyal Rinpoche. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy 
but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us with, from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As one Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that this samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water, designed to make us even thirstier. The image that's often used is the image of a bee kind of stuck in a jar, flying around, just spinning our wheels. So as an alternative to that, I'll share a poem from David Budbill called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're all just like bugs in a bowl all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right, every day climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over, around and around, up and back. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or, look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So all of this is really just to say to give your, give your heart completely to, to the, this amazing potential that you have, this, to make something of your practice of your life, to aim for the highest happiness, the happiness that no other desire can fulfill, but the, the happiness that if you, if you aim for that, all the other kinds of pleasures come, are said to come in, in the wake of it. So to remember, to feel free to spend time reflecting on the preciousness of human birth, this opportunity, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on karma, and reflecting on the, the challenges and difficulties, defects of our samsaric existence. And it, just as I did last year when I shared a similar talk and honor of my daughter Molly, I share um, this poem by Shel Silverstein called Me Stew. I have nothing to put in my stew, you see, not a bone or a bean or a black-eyed pea. So I'll just climb in the pot to see if I can make a stew out of me. I'll put in some pepper and salt and I'll sit in the bubbling water. I won't scream a bit. I'll sing while I simmer. I'll smile while I'm stewing. I'll taste myself often to see how I'm doing. I'll stir me around with this big wooden spoon and serve myself up at a quarter to noon. So bring out your stew bowls, you gobblers and snackers. Farewell. I hope you enjoy me with crackers. <laughs> so We'll just sit.
feel the preciousness. all beings know the preciousness of this birth. May all beings find harmony with change. May all beings plant wholesome seeds. May all beings let go. talk, but thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.